Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment and Rural Lifestyle Dealer Magazines. Thanks for listening in today for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Today I'm with Tom and Tim Barenga of the Illinois-based manufacturer you know as WorkSaver. We met up in Texas for today's discussion with the father-son Barenga team, who own WorkSaver along with their partner and company president, Mike Kloster. I've enjoyed getting to know all three over the past 15 years. First, there's Tom. He's easy to pick out in a crowd by his cowboy hat and leather jacket and booming voice. Son Tim, well, I'll share a secret with you. After bumping into him at a very rural outpost that he was doing some shopping for his crew back at the factory, I learned you can put a smile on his face by showing up with a case of spotted cow beer. It's only distributed in Wisconsin. And finally, there's Mike Kloster, who you will hear mentioned uh, several times by his partners today. His Badger State roots come to mind, along with, how should I say it, his rugged good looks. We've had some good times with all three at the FEMA meetings over the years. Today, WorkSaver employs 85 from its Litchfield, Illinois operations and splits its $16 million of revenue between its own branded products and what it makes for private label companies. When I walked in the door, we had machinery that was bad. The buildings were bad, they leaked like a sieve. The, sadly, we had quite a few employees that were not good. Drug addicts and alcoholics were part of the problem. And obviously the quality of the equipment had gone down. So didn't do anything fancy, just put in common sense work rules and safety rules and called a meeting and told everybody, okay, everybody's got a clean slate, but from now on, here's what we go by. That's Tom Berenga talking about what he agreed to do in late 1979 as he moved his family to South Central Illinois. It would turn out to be just one of the many challenges the company would face in its first 20 years. Not only did they have to get their internal house in order, but also needed to shift away from the commoditized farm store business, had a bankruptcy of a major client, and faced other issues that really kicked their turnaround timeline down the road. Tim, who is the youngest of the three Beringa children at age 38. He came to work in December 17th, 2001, the day after his last final exam at the University of Illinois. His older brother Tom and sister Christina also sweated out their weekends and school breaks at WorkSaver while growing up. Today, Tom is the general manager for the Ken Feld Group Farm Equipment Dealership Group in Ohio and Indiana, while Christina is enrolling in medical school. Today's episode also includes a special bonus interview that you're going to find interesting as well. So let's get going. The conversations with Tom and Tim Berenga of WorkSaver. Briefly, tell us the history of WorkSaver and, and how it came to be today. Well, there was three gentlemen in Litchfield, Illinois, that formed the old Wycomi Company, W-I-K-O-M-I. One of those gentlemen was uh, J.O. Hinken, and he ended up with that company after a year, and he ran it up until 1974, the end of 1974, and then he sold that company to Philip, Phil Sams. Phil Sams operated the company, had a manager there that, that ran it, then Phil, I, I met Phil in 1978, and in uh, the end of 79, he asked me to uh, come down and try and operate the company and, and help him uh, straighten it out. Uh, I had run the manufacturing operations of Tractor Supply prior to that. So anyway, I came down and started in December of 79. Uh, we had some very tough times. The ag economy was down considerably. 
and it stayed down through the early 80s. Had a lot of rebuilding to do. The old Wycombe Company, of course, uh, was in very bad shape. And the widow of Mr. Hinken had foreclosed on us, uh, on Wycombe. And so we formed, we formed a new company called WorkSaver Incorporated. And that officially came about in April of 1980. A lot of challenging times. We had uh, many, many things that were wrong. And the worst of it was the ag economy. By spending 10 years with Tractor Supply, I had met a lot of people and a lot of them had left Tractor Supply and gone into the farm store business. And so that was the one market opportunity that I saw. And so we developed a lot of our new equipment and some of the old, we adapted it to the farm store market. And that's what helped us stay alive. That's how, how we at least got, our, got it to a break-even point anyway. Tim, when you, you kind of go over the scope of the, the products that you have? We have a vast array of different products that we have for the market. Basically any type of attachment for a three-point front loader or skid steer is mainly what we build. And uh, we have a lot of different product lines. We have land management products where we have debris removal, material handling products such as pallet forks, grapple rakes, rotary brooms. We have snow removal products, blades and pushers. We have fencing products, post drivers, post hole diggers. And another product line we just got into a few years ago was adapter brackets where we take tractor manufacturers older connection styles and convert them over to either skid steer or Euro Global Attach. With all that said, we have over 500 whole goods that we offer to the market. And a mix of both your own labeled product as well as making product for other manufacturers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who are some of the OEMs that you, you supply? Well, the, uh, in 2003, uh, we were asked to build some products for John Deere's Frontier Division. We accepted that and uh, we, we started building, I think, seven or eight different products at that time, and mm-hmm. then that's now expanded to 38. And so that's the biggest part of our company, but we were also looking for other contract work to do. We build stuff for Bueller up in Canada, and we do a little bit for Woods and Alamo, and for um, Bushhog, CE Attachments, uh, which is a division of Gale. And the WorkSaver product line goes through a two-step distribution, is that Everywhere except Illinois, yes. In Illinois, we are direct to the dealer, but everywhere else in North America, we do go through wholesale distribution. And primarily, the way our business is, as of right now, 50% work saver, 50% contract manufacturing. I've had the pleasure of getting to your place, but for our listeners here, describe the type of machines, the type of manufacturing that you do down there in Litchfield. Well, years ago, we were building mainly product line for the farm stores and the competition we had was down south and they paid a, a lower wage and so they could produce their equipment more economically for less cost than ours and i knew at that time we had to do something to change it so we started back in say 1990 to try and modernize and add computer operated equipment and uh, become more productive and I've told the men that work for us, uh, you know, we didn't necessarily need to work harder, we had to work smarter. We had to produce more product per hour per day to compete against Southern competition that we had at that time. We have uh, kept that philosophy, and so now today we have uh, five welding robots, uh, we have a uh, laser-operated uh, cutting machine, we have plasma cutting machines, CNC operated lathes and, and uh, machining centers. 
We have a CNC-operated bus brake. We still have some of the old equipment, the big old presses and stuff like that, but uh, we, we definitely tried to modernize and, and also become more sophisticated in our manufacturing with our, our fixturing and tooling and stuff. Yeah, it's one thing that's made us successful, Mike, is that we've never sat still and just said, hey, this is good, let's just you know ride the wave. We're always developing our processes, investing in new technology, changing past practices to the most efficient way. You know, that's what you gotta do today to be in business. You always have to change and don't be afraid of it. And you had a project here in the last year or so that you were pretty proud of. The opportunity came around for us to install a solar field to help provide some of our energy requirements. And long story short, when we were all done, we got 340 kilowatt solar field and that provides about 45% of our power. And you know, with the programs that are out there today, it made sense for us to do the project. And uh, probably the biggest benefit that we've received from it is we're not an industrial area, so we suffered a lot on low voltage and brownouts, which would fry motors and computer boards and things of that nature. By having the uh, solar field there, it's acted as a capacitor, and uh, we're not seeing those low voltages anymore. Uh, we're still susceptible to spikes, but uh, the brownouts we don't see anymore. So it's been a good project. It's been very, very good for us. What's the size square footage of your operation? Well, we just did an expansion this year. We're now at 152,000. Tom, you come from very much a manufacturing background. Is that fair to say? Or? Yeah, I've always been connected with it. I was an engineer for FMC Corporation at one time, and then from there I went with Tractor Supply, and they had uh, a couple of different manufacturing uh, facilities, one in California that made cotton picker parts and another larger one up in uh, uh, Richland Center, Wisconsin, and they made engine parts and then we expanded that and uh, they made air compressors and pumps and manifolds and then eventually we got into short, some short line farm equipment. You were working out of the Richland Center at one time, correct? Yeah, I started in Chicago and uh, spent about four and a half years in the Chicago office but then we expanded the factory up in Richland Center. I was spending more time up there, so I relocated up there and then just made trips to Chicago to coordinate the, the activities that we were doing with what the tractor supply wanted to do. Tell me about the, the job that you were hired to do down there at what eventually became WorkSaver, what that well, climate was like <laughs> and what you were tasked with at the time. <clears throat> well, the company had been sadly mismanaged. The people that Phil Sams had thought could manage it were not doing a good job. And when I walked in the door, we had machinery that was bad. The buildings were bad, they leaked like a sieve. The, sadly, we had quite a few employees that were not good. Drug addicts and alcoholics were part of the problem. And obviously the quality of the equipment had gone down. So one of the immediate challenges was to straighten all that out. Uh, there was no safety rules and no work rules. The accident rate was so bad, the only insurance that they could buy was through the state of Illinois, which was very, very expensive. So didn't do anything fancy, just put in common sense work rules and safety rules and called a meeting and told everybody, okay, everybody's got a clean slate, but from now on, here's what we go by. Interestingly, we lowered the accident rate 96% that first year, just, just common sense stuff. And, uh, and that helped a lot. Then had to get rid of some of the bad employees. That was a tough job, but we, it, it had to be done. That, that cleaned it up. Then we also worked on redesign of some of the equipment. One of the deals, there was basically no drawings at that time. They made sample parts and hung them on a nail in the factory. And sometimes there would be slight differences between the parts. 
So some of the nails had four to five parts, all the same part, but with slight differences. And there was a very fine gentleman that ran the metal fabrication department, and he knew which one of those was the master. Well, I was there three months, and the poor guy got sick and died. So I had an immediate challenge uh, going through all those parts and then making drawings and finding out which one was the right one. So how, how long were you there before uh, things took the another turn and, and you ended up well, acquiring the company? Well, the, the, uh, yeah, I was optimistic that I could turn it around in a year or two. With the farm economy being down and all the other unknown problems there that I ran into, it took over four or five years before we got into a break-even point. So that, that was a, a, a very tough period. But... Um, then we started doing other things and we started being able to buy used equipment too that was in better shape than what we had and uh, become a little bit more productive and we built the farm store business uh, up to it was over 50 percent of our business for quite some time everything we, we stayed on that course uh, and, and did modernize and, and become better at it but then um, in the early 2000, uh, about 2008, 9, we saw that the farm store industry was not an industry we, we wanted to remain in. Other people had gotten into it and the profit margins had always been slim. They became even less so and not, sometimes non-existent. So we knew Mike Gloucester had joined me at that time and as a sales manager. And basically we worked our way out of the farm store business and started doing more contract work and concentrating more on products uh, that our distributors could sell. And that took several years to do, but it was like walking away. When you walk away from over 50% of your business, it, today it's about 5%. Yeah. We still do a little bit. It takes some courage to do it, that. It, well, it was uh, challenging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then Mike has uh, always been very good in sales and marketing. We, we started doing more contract work. I, I mentioned that John Deere, we started building product for them in 2004. And that was good too because they were they're demanding and, and we had to change a few of our processes, uh, especially our painting and, and quality control and uh, to meet their standards and so on. And then we used those same things through our other products and, uh, and we improved those also. And then um, as we improved, we've, we, of course, we were also looking for other contract work, which I mentioned earlier, we've done some of that. And uh, so we finally have expanded and, and also kept on the modernization. And this is where we got to with the other CNC equipment. We've added onto the buildings, tried to make improvements in, in all around. And uh, I think that's what's helped us out the most. We've got, got some good people now. Mike Kloster is now our president. He's been our president of the company for uh, 11. And then Tim joined us. And when Tim got out of college, he took over the shipping department and was able to make a big contribution there. The plant manager uh, I had at that time told me he was going to retire. So we had Tim work with him and take over the plant manager job. And uh, Tim did a good job there and also was able to make improvements, help, help us out considerably uh, from that standpoint. And then as we, we moved on, I knew that uh, Tim you know, eventually would like to take over the company, but Mike and Tim and I bought the company from Phil Sams in basically January of uh, 2016. And we've got a, a good working relationship. 
we work together on it and work on a lot of the problems and of course we just identify the problems and then figure out a plan on how to solve it or try to go a new direction. It's worked out quite well. We keep trying to move forward. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment, but here's another free podcast from the Lesseter Media staff that you want to be sure to check out. I'm Michael Ellis, publisher of Rural Lifestyle Dealer Magazine. If you build or sell equipment to the rural lifestyle type customer, you'll also want to check out our Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast, free, to get the latest in sales, service, and marketing ideas for this unique and growing customer base. Search Rural Lifestyle Dealer on your favorite podcast station and give us a listen in this monthly podcast release. Now, back to your Farm Equipment Magazine podcast. When you decided to get into the contract manufacturing to shift gears, how did you recognize the opportunity? How did you shift to and what, what was needed to go after that business in a bigger way? Here again, Mike Kloster had worked about 15 years with Massey Ferguson or Agco. And Mike had a very diversified uh, work experience with them. And he had worked with compact tractors, he'd worked with loaders and some other pieces of equipment. Through his experience, he had uh, a, a little bit better feel. Uh, and, and of course, people that he had worked with had left the company and gone other places. So, you know, he, he knew some people in other companies. That's been a help. The other one uh, was my older son. My older son, Tom, uh, he had a college, he went to work for John Deere. And uh, he was working for John Deere in uh, 2001. And he's the one that clued us in that John Deere was forming the new division, Frontier Division. Mm -hmm. And so then Mike went and made the phone call and went over and, and had a meeting with them. Like we had several meetings with them. That was not successful at that time. They had uh, somebody higher up in John Deere made the decision to, to give the business to another company. Well, <clears throat> that other company uh, couldn't quite handle it. And so in 2003, they were way, way behind in delivery. That's when they came back to us and asked us if we would be willing to do yeah. on that. So on the frontier side, that's how that one kind of yeah. came about. You were agile enough to make it Make it well, work. they came <laughs> back in 2003 and asked if, if we would still like to build equipment for them, and we said, yeah, of course, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say, yeah, of course, yes, that isn't quite sure. We, we had a meeting on it and decided which side of that do we want to be on. And, and we thought that uh, being a supplier to them would be more beneficial and more educational than not being. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, a, that's an interesting point. You, you, what you learn by yeah, by hitching your wagon to mm -hmm. and we did we Deer did. Frontier. We, we we learned a lot. Yeah, yeah improved our quality drastically. So yeah. learned to. But then, as right. across, then you can apply those principles across everything that you did, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So today the company is owned by the three of you. Right. Mm -hmm. Did you have ownership starting yeah. in the yeah. 1980s the, or the arrangement I had with Phil Sams? Uh, Part of the reward for saving the company and turning it around was I got 25% of the company. Okay. And that took some time. Of course, in the, in the beginning years, it was 25% of a negative right. net worth. Yeah. Other than yeah. <laughs> it did eventually work out. What do you remember when you were telling Paulette, your wife, about this move you were going to make down to Illinois? And uh, first, uh, I already mentioned that 79, 1980, the farm economy was in bad shape anyway. Tractor Supply had sold the factory up in Wisconsin to another gentleman, 
and I tried to stay on with him and that did not work out and of course then Tim had uh, Tim had just been born mm -hmm. and so when we moved to Litchfield Illinois Tim was only five months old so having three children and a wife and then walking into a business that had all kinds of problems uh, it was a real big challenge and uh, I tell you my, my wife was a, a very strong supporter and uh, helped me through those those trying times uh, very much so but at the same time I put a lot of time in at the factory so she had the the bigger responsibility of raising the children what's your earliest memory of WorkSaver well the, the factory also dubbed as a babysitter sometimes <laughs> so uh, you know I'd always get in trouble and get dirty uh, running around the place and uh, usually dad would scold me a little bit on that but um, I don't know probably about six or seven we were old enough to do some manual labor we would just uh, had a little wheelbarrow and we'd walk up and down the street and pick trash out of the ditches if posts needed painted around the facility we would do that uh, when I got older I do uh, lawn mowing and janitorial work and things of that nature but as I kept getting older and developing dad let me work with the uh, uh, team leaders and the shop supervisors and uh, they were able to teach me the trades of machining and welding and running CNC equipment so anyway it was a very good education and you know dad was a strong believer in uh, having us kids come from the bottom up you know the other thing instilled in us was to make sure we never asked anybody to do a job that we haven't done ourselves and that was a good thing to learn I also took my children to some of the farm shows and after they'd been around a show or two, then we let them help. They could hand out literature, and uh, then as they acquired some knowledge, they could even talk to some of the people that came up to our booth. And I, I always think that that was a, a valuable part of their education. Sometimes we would notice to the schools that they were going to be out of school for three or four days. The school didn't see it quite that way, but uh, I felt it was a, that they would learn more at the farm show. Mm -hmm than they would those three or four days in school. And I think it gave all my children the ability to talk to strangers and uh, try and you know answer their questions and, and help them out and uh, look them in the eye when they're talking to them. I, I think it was uh, another valuable experience. And they, they also, I had some very good salespeople and they, they worked with them. And, and I would tell all, all three of my children, pay attention to this fella, you're gonna learn something if you just watch how he talks to people, his sales technique. Yeah, I was 11 and sold my first piece of equipment at the Louisville Farm Show, so that was a oh, yeah. pretty memorable <laughs> moment for me. What was it? A uh, bale spear, yeah. a bucket bale spear, yep. Yeah. So Dad give you the commission on that? No, I didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> I think it's still in escrow somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, did you always know that you wanted to, to do this as a career? Uh, for the most part, yes. Yeah. I mean, Dad and I have always been able to have that working relationship, and we like working together. We respect each other's traits. Right out of college, I was planning on going to work for somebody else for a while, but uh, through some situations that happened, it just the timing was right. They had a need for me to come back and uh, run the shipping department, and so I started with that, and then, like I said, took over the production facility, and you know, then went on the sales after that. It just all fell in place. So yeah, it would have been nice to get some more outside experience, but it just worked out that the start right after college. Sounds like you're getting an extremely well-rounded perspective since you've been there in the plant management and purchasing and sales and marketing area. So you're seeing every aspect of the business and getting your hands dirty and 
Yes, yeah, we're very fortunate to have uh, Mike Kloster on our team, and uh, Mike has said he'd like to work uh, at least another 10 years, and uh, that's great with me because uh, we work very well together as well, mm -hmm. and uh, then when he's ready to retire, then I'm hoping to take over the whole company. A story that's coming up in these interviews is the grit of your dad's generation and, mm -hmm. and my dad's generation that I'm not sure exists as much today, the risk-taking, the bootstrapping, you know, jumping in and all that. So th that's a story that I'm intrigued about as we're getting into these things. So. i tell you something that's very important in our working relationship is that we don't take it personal. You know, work is work and we're able to separate that from the family life. And uh, we see a lot of uh, other peers that can't do that. And uh, you know, usually that's not, not successful, but for us, we are, are fortunate enough we're able to keep it separate. But I was, I was kind of lucky in the early years. You know, I was only a little baby, so I don't remember the early years. So yeah. <laughs> I was kind of fortunate because dad, he worked on godly hours. And uh, you know, not only was he our chief engineer, he was our sales manager. He was the, uh, you know, the, the safety man. I mean, he, tried, he had to run the whole place. Yeah. He did have a plant manager, but there was a lot of hours and a lot of time that he spent at the factory. Yeah. I can tell you of a couple Saturdays that we had to go to the post office and get the mail and hope there was enough checks there to cover what we had handed out the Friday before. <laughs> had had several times. We did that, but there was always, you had to identify different opportunities or ways uh, to try and combat the problem. And with some of the early uh, farm store people, you could put a deal together and make things happen. There was a company out of uh, Iowa, Central Tractor, and they were a good company to work with. I did a lot of work with them. And uh, Elliot Brody was uh, the owner of the company, and he, he was tough and demanding, but he was also very fair. And he had several other people under him that were working for him that had been with Tractor Supply, and that was how I knew them. But uh, we ended up building uh, rear blades. Like one time, we were desperate. I, I had it was back in the early years, and had got the company to a break-even, but we would make money the first six months and then lose it the, the last six months and come out about even. And the problem was we were not manufacturing enough product in the last six months to cover the overhead. And so I knew that Central Tractor sold uh, a lot of rear blades. And so we went to them and put a very, very sharp deal together that, uh, anyway, uh, we, we built the rear blades for them. And we're talking 10,000 rear blades. The other part of the deal was you had to start shipping the blades in September and you didn't get paid for them until January. So I also had to go to our suppliers and tell them that I had this opportunity, but I needed them to work with me. And they all did. So tough time, but when in January came, we got the check, we paid everybody, and, and uh, as a result, we ended up making some money because we were able to, instead of having to use the profit we had made in the first six months to subsidize and cover the overhead of the last six months, we were covering the overhead and so therefore we could keep some of the profit. So. That's a dividend of, of trust and relationships mm -hmm. from years prior, right? You know, Mike, one that comes to mind is um, that uh, same farm store group uh, got merged and consolidated and ended up being a big company called uh, Quality Farm Stores. And um, anyway, I graduated college in 2001, and that's when I joined Dad and Mike. I think it was a week or two weeks after I got out of school, they filed bankruptcy and uh, liquidated the company. And at that time, they were 35% of our business approximately. Yeah, right. And uh, you talk about a huge hit, 
And then to top it all off, our labor union went on strike, and so they were standing on the street. So here we are, fresh out of college, and uh, we're, we're doing production work, working ungodly hours, yeah. uh, just trying to get, get equipment out the door and service our customers. And yeah. luckily, it didn't last very long. It only lasted three weeks on the labor dispute. But the ramifications of that uh, customer going bankrupt took us about three years to recover yeah. from. So anyway, that was a real quick wake up. Hey, you're in the real world now. Yeah. Make a go of it. <laughs> yeah. so. Stepped right into the fire, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That bankruptcy was a was a bad deal it was an orchestrated bankruptcy an East Coast financing company had bought the farm stores the, at what it had been previously five five separate customers for us Central Tractor got bought out the, the owner had retired and he got bought out and then he, he bought Country General which was uh, out of Grand Island Nebraska and then they bought Big Bear which was out of St. Cloud Minnesota and so they cut it down well then, this other finance company, they bought quality stores out of uh, Muskegon, Michigan, and then they bought the Central Tractor Group, and then they ended up buying Fisco, which was a, a small farm store group out of California. So what had been five separate customers for us, with no nothing on our part, became one giant 35% of our business. And what they did was they, they immediately pulled money out of the company and then operated on the, uh, the supplier's money, and they kept demanding and wanting longer terms. So anyway, it was quite a, quite a time. When we first found, when Mike and I found out about it, that they were in that bad of shape, it was, I think, May of 2001, and they owed us about a million two. And we, by calling other uh, suppliers to them, we found out if you stop shipping, they quit paying. So we couldn't afford that, so we, what he called, play the game. We kept shipping, and uh, then Mike would call him one week and ask for money, and I would call him the next week and ask him for money. We did that. Now the downside of that is, when they, in October, when they did go bankrupt, then anything that they had paid you the 90 days prior was uh, subject to be returned as preferential payment. But however, that's negotiable. And so then we had to go hire a bankruptcy attorney. We got a very expensive education yeah. <laughs> in that line. It was out of our control. I guess what has always amazed me that the attorney, the bankruptcy attorneys, ended up controlling the money, the money that got paid back and the uh, other funds. And then they would sit back and study those funds at $300 an hour. Mm -hmm. And then over the next five years, dole out $20,000 or something back to the uh, companies that they owed it to. I made the comment to the bankruptcy attorney that we had hired, and I said, you know, I said, this is like a license to steal. He said, yeah, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> and I didn't quite share that opinion. Yeah, you're right. Very similar to the federal government. We survived it, which is uh, amazing. I mean, time we got all done, it cost us well over $800,000. Uh, between what we lost and the attorney fees and yeah. all that. It was serious and, and, and very significant. But, you know, at the same time, in the early years, it wasn't that kind of money, but we were still teetering on, well, you know, are you going to keep the doors open? Yeah, oh, one, he wasn't running to the bank on Saturday to cover payroll, but <laughs> it was still a major hit. Yeah, yeah right. I'd say the early years were definitely the most challenging yeah. for Dad. You know, another uh, opposite end of the spectrum, in 2004, we exploded in growth. And uh, that's when we first started uh, doing a lot of contract manufacturing for a couple of uh, uh, companies. And uh, that was my first year that I took over the plant and the purchasing. 
April of 2004, raw material prices skyrocketed, and in a three-month time period, they doubled uh, from what they were. So here we are trying to grow fast, and our uh, input costs doubled. I learned a very valuable lesson later that summer. I ran the company out of cash, and you talk about struggles. And so it took us about 45 days to get back in line and uh, get some cash flowing again. But it was a very valuable lesson, too, is don't run out of cash. (laughs) So very hard to operate. We'll get back to the Barangas in just a moment. But first, a special piece of content for you today. So we're in our Brookfield, Wisconsin offices today. i got Roger Murdoch, who's Vice President of Agri-Solutions with me, and he's the sponsor of the podcast on Ag Entrepreneurs. We wanted to take just a few moments to, to catch up on Roger's business. Thanks again for what you're doing in sponsoring these stories. First, give us an early history of the Ingersoll name and brand here in North America. So the Ingersoll product started in 1884 in Illinois. The gentleman was uh, Stephen Ingersoll. Together with his son Roy, they began experiment with uh, the heat treating process, innovation manufacturing techniques, and uh, it just kind of grew from there. Some of the heritage of the factory did end up in Hamilton, Ontario, which at one time was the world's largest implement uh, manufacturer. It sat on over 500 acres and was part of the uh, International Harvester umbrella at that time. The Ingersoll brand, it's well known as a key supplier to the original equipment manufacturers that are in the tillage, seeding, and planting industry. So basically we deal in anything that is ground engaged. So we go from disc blades to sweeps to chisel points. And we feel it's a very important part of the agricultural industry because if you don't have a well-prepared seedbed, the rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big a tractor or combine that you have because if that seed does not get off to a good start and quick germination, your yield is going to suffer. And as we see farming practices change and as farming is maybe more dialed into a certain prescription for each farm, it becomes very important to have a wide variety of tillage blades available to handle residue, to handle uh, soils that are heavy in clay or have sand, and there's just a wide variety. And the closer we can subscribe that certain tillage practice or planting practice to that specific farm, the greater the yields will be. Ingersoll, actually, we're part of a larger company now. We go under Agri Solutions, and under Agri Solutions, we have um, several different brands, and uh, those brands are sold specifically in certain parts of the world or also are a little bit outside of tillage. One of our latest acquisitions has to do with a company that does logistics management and also... That's uh, Trinity. That's correct and uh, also deals with supplying hardware for OEs on their assembly of products and so on. You mentioned the historic facility in Hamilton, Ontario, which I was uh, impressed to have been there to visit that and know what took place there. Also tell us what visitors would see today if they walked in and the investments that you've made in the technology in that plant. Well, one of the reasons that uh, the facility is located is where it is on the shores of Lake Ontario, because you've got to remember back in the uh, early 1900s, it wasn't as easy to transport things like steel and so on. So being on the Great Lakes, great access to coal and iron ore supplies could be brought in by ships, promoted the growth of the steel industry in that area. So what better place to put a 
implement plant and then in front of a couple of steel mills. So that's uh, one of the reasons that the uh, factory was located there is uh, the quick access to uh, steel manufacturing. Today, as we keep up with the farming practices, as the speed has gone up and it becomes important to have a higher quality product, um, we've gone to quite a bit of automation and robotics. So as the steel comes into the plant, you know, it is um, processed, put into a disc form, and then uh, robots uh, take over from there, whether it's to put the uh, edge on, it's to form it, it's to um, do the heat treating process or paint it. And one of the items that you have to do in uh, the heat treating and so on is be very precise, and uh, robots will give you that precision so that you get a quality blade every time coming off of a line. What can you tell us about your presence worldwide? Uh, we're the only company that has manufacturing firms in all the key continents for agriculture. We have a facility in Hamilton, Ontario. We have one in Milan, Illinois. We have a couple in the northeast part of Spain. Uh, we have one in Brazil and one in India. So we are well covered to handle all the OE's needs globally in all the key areas where uh, agriculture is prominent. Yeah, Roger, tell me how your business as a supplier to farm equipment manufacturers has changed and why. It used to be with the, when we would have large contracts with the OEMs, we'd have these long runs. We could set up our lines for days, weeks even, and pump out the same product all the time. The dealers are not in a position to carry inventory. The product isn't moving in the numbers that it used to. Product is built quite a bit better. It lasts longer. I mean, I remember my dad, if a car got 100,000 miles, I mean, it was done. How many implement dealerships are out there driving pickup trucks that are well over 500,000 miles and there's nothing wrong with them? And I think that the same is true with farm equipment. It's made so much better. So with that, we've had to adapt to the changing uh, manufacturing, as I said. So We've had to figure out a way to shorten up lead times and get by with shorter runs. So we've had to retool our plant to adapt to the new way of getting product to the market, and that is smaller niche cottage-type businesses that are out there versus these big massive runs. One size fits all is not working in farming. It is prescription farming, and that prescription goes right down to the individual farm and even the guy across the street might have different tillage and planting practices than you do. And the manufacturers recognize that and are going with smaller runs and we've adapted to that. What do you think that the average farmer might not recognize about the innovation that a short line equipment manufacturer actually brings to the market and onto their farm? Well, the word shortliner kind of says it all. It's, you know, they can shorten the stream of getting a product from an idea to fruition. And of course, if it's truly innovative, and most of the time they are, they can make life easier for the farmer, make it more profitable, make it more productive. It's not that the larger manufacturers don't have the ability. It's just that it's all about numbers. And a lot of times, uh, some of these new ideas initially are such small numbers that it is just not financially practical for a larger company to take it through the development stage. And so the shortliners do a great job of proving or disproving a innovation that can occur in farming. I like how you put that short in the stream of an idea to fruition because I don't know that everyone thinks of shortline that way. That's an, that's an interesting take on it. 
when someone talks short line innovations, what are some of the ones that are the best examples of innovation that come to mind that really made an impact on farming? All things started with a smaller company's idea, if you will, whether it was somebody like the Baldwin brothers who developed like the Gleaner Combine, and then it got acquired by an Alice Chalmers who then became Agco. I mean, so many of the things that are out there have been lost in history, but did go back to um, a short line innovation. And a lot of times some of the successful innovations um, get purchased because it's a, a patented product so somebody will actually buy the complete patent or they'll buy the whole company and take it into further development and then it gets incorporated into the bigger company's mainstream of products. I would say that it's no different than any other industry whether it's uh, computers or cars. I mean we can think of somebody like the vehicles, the Tesla it wasn't developed by a mainstream company. I don't think agriculture's any different, but I do think that every farm has a shop. Just by having the shop, it lends itself, it, it supports someone's thought process. They might be sitting around or thinking and they can just run right out to their shop and put this innovation together and then the neighbor sees it. And all of a sudden, you know, now you go to the guy in town who actually has a welding shop and he says, well, yeah, I can make a bunch of those. And then all of a sudden, well, there's a company that makes a, you know, an implement line where this little new hitch would work very well. It grows that way. It's all grassroots and so on. Where I think a major, they wouldn't take computer time, if you will, to innovate uh, a little small widget, if you will, on a piece of equipment like might come out of a uh, shop farm. Why did you want to support this Ag Entrepreneurs podcast on family-run equipment manufacturers? One thing that is unique about farming is even though there's large corporations out there, there's still a great number of family farms, and even some of the big corporations, they're still family. And uh, we just find it interesting to hear about the different family practices. And then, of course, with your podcast, and that leads into the businesses that are involved in family. And a lot of these people were farmers and transitioned into uh, manufacturers. And, and uh, it's just interesting to see how somebody just took a, a little idea or they were out on their farm and they saw, okay, well, if I do this, I can do this faster, I can do this better, and developed it into a business today. Some are still small and that's the way they want it and some of them are multinational companies and even global companies that have been very successful and it's just uh, interesting to see the different developments that have occurred. We appreciate your support on that. Uh, these are stories that we and several others wanted to get told. and we Glad to be a part of it. To learn more about Ingersoll Tillage, visit www.ingersolltillage.com. And now back to the Barangas and more on the WorkSaver story. One of the interviews we did talked about the 80s and there was there was nothing backing them up. They persevered because it was the only way to, to get through it. Mm -hmm. And talked to a second generation who said the problem 25 years later was that not only were business conditions very challenging and dire in some cases, but now there was something to lose on top of it. His, mm -hmm. his father didn't have anything to lose at the, the first time. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when there's nothing there to begin with, you're not going to lose a whole lot. But yeah, on the other hand, I, you know, for, at, in the early years, I had three children at home and a wife, and so had to make it work. When you find yourself in a corner, there's only one way out, and it's, it's a lot of hard work. You better get it done. 
it sounds like working alongside your father mm -hmm. your entire life. What are some of the tenets, the core principles that you're going to pass on to your children that you've received from your dad? Well, the first one is just don't be afraid to work. You know, get in there, get dirty, get the job done, and learn how to, uh, you know, show somebody else how to do it too, and uh, develop those leadership skills. But probably one of the most important lessons I learned from my father was always look at different situations. There's never just one solution. Come up with multiple solutions for a problem and then evaluate them and then pick the best course of action. And uh, yeah, it takes a little bit more time to do that, but uh, anytime I was doing design work uh, back in engineering school, uh, dad would look at something I did and said, okay, do it another way and force me to take the time to you know, think of a different solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been very valuable going forward is just to uh, always look at different ways to solve a problem. What is your biggest success, specific, whether it was a deal, a specific period of time, the positive defining moment in the company's history? Oh, we've had several. The first one was putting that 10,000 rear blade order with Central Tractor. I mean, I, I basically was selling the blades at cost, but we ended up making money. And it was because we had covered the overhead, we were able to save the money we made in the, in the early part of the year. Yeah, not a huge amount, but at least it was a positive amount. We've also developed new products, and uh, uh, there's been several times we've had new products take off and, and do quite well. What, what were some of those specific products? Well, we, we were early on in, in developing a grapple rake, and uh, it was kind of funny the way that worked out. I have a farm in, in southern Missouri, which is a, some people would not call it a farm. It's pretty rough, uh, very rough. And we were down there clearing some land, and Tim was down helping me. And uh, he was using a, a front end loader with a pallet fork to pick up larger pieces of wood, unburned wood, out of a, an old burn pile. And um, I was down on the ground picking up the small stuff. And he got done and came down alongside of me, and he was working beside me, and all of a sudden I saw him jerk his hand back. A copperhead snake had struck at him. Missed. And uh, <laughs> so. Good reflex. We, we, yeah. we, we killed the snake and the snake did not bite him. And, uh, but both of us agreed that we didn't like working down there with those snakes. So we came back and, and uh, built the first grapple rake. Took it down there and tried it. And on the first model, I had the, the, the hydraulic cylinders were on the rear and on the outside. Tim was using it on the tractor to push a, a big tree into a burn pile and another tree spun around and hit the hydraulic cylinder and, and bent it. So that kind of put us out of commission. So anyway, we took it back to the factory and had it sitting there waiting until we had time to make a new hydraulic cylinder. My salesman at that time came to me and he said, you know, he says, we can sell those. I said, I can sell 80 or 100. And so, oh, okay. And we needed the sales. So anyway, uh, I had an engineer working for me at that time. And, I already knew some changes that wanted to be made and I told him what to make. He did that and we went into production and that first year we sold 400 of them. So wow. that was kind of a, yeah. a, yep. a, a neat good product. Deal. Came off neat on the old farm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, products that we've developed came out of necessity, whether it be at his farm or my farms. We'll see something that we can improve or make better, and that's just one of the avenues uh, we get ideas from. You know, something else that's made us successful is uh, Dad and I test it to what we designed it to do, or what the engineer designed it to, if it's one of our engineers, but then we go destroy it. Yeah. And uh, that way we learn where's the weak points, how can people hurt the piece of machinery, and uh, that's made us very successful because 
be able to uh, hedge off a lot of uh, potential failures in the field. But I'd say one of our uh, big success stories that we have is our team of employees. Uh, we've got a great staff of people yeah. and a lot of uh, longevity and uh, tenure. If it wasn't for them, uh, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, and everybody works together. Tim's right. We have a, an excellent team now, and uh, they're all good, good, good people, good folks, and uh, they're in there trying to to make the company successful. Whether it's from you know order entry to trying to ship it properly out the back door and package it right, yeah, very, very good. Mm -hmm. But we do have, even though okay, I may design a piece of equipment or Tim, whatever. Then we 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 build a prototype and then we get uh, other people involved including production people and the other salespeople, and we ask for their inputs and criticism several times we make changes mm -hmm. out of that meeting before we actually go to them and put it on the marketplace how did you achieve that culture of teamwork and hard work i mean a lot that's where a lot of companies ultimately struggle right i, so I think just because we're not afraid to jump right in with them and uh you know growing up and you know dad's always been out in the shop and we got two types of machinery at our place those that are being moved and those that will be moved mm -hmm. and because uh, we're always changing the way we produce and uh you know the fact that we jump right in we work with the employees i think goes a long way with yeah, them they see you busting your rear end and, mm -hmm. and, and you're yeah. setting the tone and then we've we've tried to do things to to make it better for the employees uh, when i walked in there the buildings were very old and, and we were confined space was a premium here a few years ago we wanted to build a a new lunch room for the employees and we we built a nice one uh, it's in an old building but we built a, a, a nice air-conditioned lunch room made it big enough that we can even hold uh, plant meetings and safety meetings and I think the, the employees really like that, the fact that on breaks, especially in the summer, they can come to a, an air-conditioned spot and cool off, have their snacks or whatever, and, and mm -hmm. uh, go from there. And then uh, the other reason or how we were able to build our team was just keeping them involved. You know, it, we, we don't really run a dictatorship where we tell them what to do all the time. You know, we actually invest in their thoughts and ideas, and uh, they get to help in the process. Mm -hmm. And uh, they get to take ownership of what we're doing. What you guys accomplished in your company it, it must be far more difficult to do what you did back then. Well, well every, tell everything me what you think. has you know, become so much more expensive. Go back to the early years, the first machine I bought was an iron worker, a very simple $10,000 iron worker. But at that time, it was such an improvement over the old piece of junk that was there running. Uh, it was a huge step forward for us, but for $10,000. Early this year, the beginning of the year, we identified that we have a problem or had a problem in our paint uh, area that even though we have two paint booths and we were operating them two shifts, we couldn't paint fast enough to get all the product painted. And so Tim basically took the project on of adding on to our paint building and adding a third paint line. That, that was uh, upwards around $600,000. Anything new we want to do today is so expensive. We have other situations that we know how to correct, but we're talking a couple million dollars to fix them. And um, very capital intensive yeah, business. Very capital. Yeah. yeah, you know, in the old days, we could save money by laying employees off. 
today our factory overhead with our machinery is, is so high that that doesn't do any good for us, mm -hmm. that we have to keep the tons running through the factory. So it makes us a little bit more due diligent and a little bit better long-term planning and uh, putting our customers together to where we can sustain that amount of volume that we have to push through. Yeah, that's the other lesson we've learned, that all this computer-operated equipment is very nice, and when it works, it's fantastic. But when t things slow down, the cost of just having that equipment there will just eat your life. So if you buy that equipment, you have to keep it busy. Mm -hmm. So you better figure out th things you're going to do or, or how, how you're going to keep that equipment working. Whether you make any money or not, it becomes immaterial. It's just the fact that you can cover the cost of having that machinery there. We toured some dealers, some, some farmers, uh, got some combine time in yesterday while we were down here, and they, they were all asking about the group that we were here for, and it, it's some short-line manufacturers. Got me thinking that the farmer, he likes his short-line equipment, but doesn't think about the challenges that must go into short-line machinery still having a place in the world and what they're working on. What do you think the farmer perhaps doesn't realize about the technology coming to his operation if it were not for the short line manufacturer. Here again, the farmer today is more knowledgeable than definitely the farmers 30, 40 years ago. And the big contributing factor there is the internet. So what that enables different farmer people to do that are potential customers, they can actually go on their computer and see our piece of equipment handling hay, handling material for the grapple, or digging a post hole, or driving a post with a post driver, and they can see the equipment operate. And so they've got better questions, more intense questions, as, as far, or more specific questions, than, than what it used to be. Uh, also, you know, they, inventory is always a problem at dealers. And of course, the majors, are, they, they want the dealer to have their inventory. So a lot of dealers basically don't stock very much short line stuff. And so the, sometimes the only time they can see our product is at shows. Well, the internet has evened that out that they, can not, they don't have to necessarily go to a show to see it, uh, although some of them do. And so to me, I, I think they're, they're better equipped and, and more educated. I think they're also more knowledgeable about the short, some of the short line equipment than what they were in the past. Yeah, I think the farmer would just be amazed at how difficult it is, is to get product to market. And, uh, you know, the old channels uh, still work uh, quite well, but with the Internet, it's definitely a different marketplace. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's starting to be, uh, become more interesting with uh, foreign competition on the more simpler products. You know, the amount of time and resources that uh, companies have to invest and in how do they get their product in front of the customer uh, is quite immense. Thanks to Tom and Tim Baranga for their personal story, and also to Ingersoll Tillage for making this podcast series possible. You can check the company out at www.ingersolltillage.com. And a shout out to two guys here at Lesseter Media that removed my stumbles and edit out most of my going down the rabbit hole tangents. That's Jeff Lazeski and Joe Kinsley. Appreciate it, guys. So thanks for joining me today for the sit down with the Barangas and the WorkSaver story. Until next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment and Rural Lifestyle Dealer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <laughs>